Once, when I was 15 or so, I played an interesting board game. I understand that may not sound particularly noteworthy to our young and or European listeners for whom interesting games have always been around, so let me stress just how bleak the board game situation was in North America in the 80s and 90s. Technically, a handful of good games existed. Dune and Cosmic Encounter are both a couple years older than I am. But they were the province of an extremely niche and close-knit subculture, and no one I knew had ever heard of them. There was no board game geek, there were no content creators, the internet honestly barely worked, and the only games I knew about were the ones in the toy aisle, in the Bradleys, in the strip mall, down the street from Nana's house, which is to say, chess, checkers, life, risk, Candyland, shoots and ladders, whatever Parcheesi was. The only German game among them was for some reason marketed to Americans as Chinese checkers, even though it was neither of those things. There were some toys packaged with incredibly flimsy rule sets like Operation and Mousetrap, and on the very rare occasion that something new appeared, there was a 90% chance that it was a reskin of Monopoly. I remember seeing one such knockoff themed around a celebrity real estate tycoon who was a staple of the tabloids back then, a kind of self-aggrandizing buffoon who sold himself to page six as an avatar of the excesses of the greed is good 80s. I can still see the gaudy italic gold lettering on the black box that said, it's not whether you win or lose, but whether you win. And yes, as you have correctly surmised, it was a Donald Trump-themed board game with all the quality that license implies. So it was a big deal when, after a decade and a half on the planet, I first experienced an interesting game with interesting decisions. The kind of game that left me with something to think about. And what, you're surely wondering, made this game more compelling than the dreary mass-market dreck of my formative years? Well... That's an interesting question. James Ernest, a game designer whose credits include Lords of Vegas and Trogdor! Exclamation Point, says that a great game is a destination, and as such is enjoyed three times. First, you enjoy the anticipation, like, I can't wait to go to Paris, or Taco Bell, or for our Lorcana heads, Disney World. This is the kind of enjoyment that board game Instagram was made for. We're all on there hyping each other up to play new games and discover old classics. Certainly, it's the core of most of my conversations with my buddy Alba. Hi, Alba. Hello. I mean, this is what we do, right? Like, yo, I'm trying to try Barcelona. Oh my God, it's so sick. You got to play it. It's our thing. (laughs) Yes, this is very much our thing 24-7. So then when you're actually at a destination, you're enjoying it for the second time. Mm. Like, can you believe this incredible Beaux-Arts architecture? Or like, bro, this burrito is so edible and reasonably priced. Or like, whoa, that human person who deserves a life of dignity and respect is wearing an enormous insulated duck costume in the sweltering Florida humidity. I bet he's going to get heat stroke and collapse. Let's watch. I don't know. I assume that's what people do at Disney World. And this kind of enjoyment, as it pertains to gaming, has become much more common. Like, when we were kids, we'd be like, this battleship game looks cool, let's play it, and then sit there for three hours while the will to live was slowly drained from your tiny body. (laughs) But these days, games are mostly pretty good. You're probably going to have fun playing one. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, and then lastly, you enjoy remembering a destination. You've got those pictures you took from the top of the Tor Eiffel, or that stomach ache from eating four Doritos Locos tacos, or else you're still giggling about how Donald Duck passed out from heat stroke in the sweltering Florida <laughs> humidity and fell right into Ariel, who then tripped over her own tail, and the whole parade just fell over like Domino's. <sighs> and a game that can make you do that, well, that's something special. Which brings me back to the interesting game I played that one time. Now, I can't in good conscience tell you that it was a great game because I I didn't really enjoy playing it. But the two other kinds of enjoyment, the before and after fun, by that standard, this game was incredible. It probably helped that I got to play it with the designers, one of whom had recently transferred into my high school. He was a cool guy, confident, handsome, super smart, probably the only kid I knew who was, at that age, as politically stubborn as I was, (laughs) though way on the other end of the ideological spectrum. But we got along. We both liked music and movies and arguing about our many points of disagreement on the big questions, which is, I suppose, how I came to be invited to test out his game. You see, he and his best friend from his previous life as a homeschool kid had invented an entirely new political philosophy. It was called radical individualism. And it was, of course, just garden variety libertarianism, but they didn't know that (laughs) at the time. Libertarianism, it's it's the crab of political philosophies. It evolves independently over and over again. Every time a 13-year-old boy begins his transition from the solipsism of youth to the social entanglements of early adulthood, needs to find an ethical justification for his enduring self-interest. So these dudes, they have an elaborate worldview refined over many, many hours of pondering and pontification (laughs) and no way to demonstrate its obvious superiority to the feeble political structures of suburban central New Jersey. (laughs) I mean, they're too young to run for mayor or start a business or start a family or really exercise their will in any way over the actual world. But what if they could make a tiny world that was entirely under their control? And so, my friend Eli, hi, Eli. Hi, Kenan. Hi, Alpha. <laughs> hi. So, you and your bestie made a board game. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> what an intro. I had no idea where you were going with this. I definitely did not forget about it. It is all coming back to me at once. And politically, I think it's I think it's good for a 13-year-old to be a libertarian and no further than that. But yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's very funny. We find different things to argue about now. Now we argue about board games. <laughs> Absolutely. So this game was a, a combination of Monopoly and Risk, right? Yep. We took the rules to Monopoly and the rules to Risk. It was really just kind of a currency that you could use between the two. Right. I remember, tell me if this is right, you had to use the money you earned on the Monopoly board to raise and sustain your armies on the risk board. Exactly. And as you took over territory on the risk board, that gave you more money. So you could kind of either go the capitalist route or the military route in order to dominate either. (laughs) Yeah, you essentially made a tiny working model of the military industrial complex. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was it was like it was pretty much the first 4X game. (laughs) But just kind of two, just kind of two of the X's. Those are the two two fun ones, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Like, you were halfway there. Yeah. Wow. It was a fourth game after the colonialism part. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, let's assume that as road. Yeah, yeah. So you make this tiny working model of the military industrial complex, and then you recruited your friends of varying political persuasions to defend their belief systems in your cardboard arena. Whoa. Absolutely. And the lead up to the game was was great. It's full of trash talking and bluster, especially from its extremely self assured design team. 
And I will say this much for the nascent radical individualist movement. It absolutely dominated at Riscopoli. What was it actually called? Do you remember? I don't know if we actually had a name for it. Well, it's it's Riscopoli now. And by the way, we only played that once. Mm-hmm. That's right. That was the one and only time that we actually... I was at the one game of yeah, this. Yeah. I mean, we sort of yeah. like, you know, did our... 13-year-old version of playtesting it, kind of, beforehand. So, yeah, it was really just a, it was an experiment. And then it was just like, this is ready for market. (laughs) Well, I think, I think where Kenneth's getting is like, it wasn't really fun to play. I also had never played Risk before, so I didn't understand it really. And I, once I was learning it, I didn't much care for it. And Monopoly, obviously, like in its contemporary form, it's a game designed to demonstrate what huge assholes everyone you love would be if only given the opportunity. So yeah, like you combine these two slogs of a game into one giant slog of a game. Absolutely. <laughs> I can't say I really enjoyed playing it. I don't think anybody did. I think you guys did because you kicked our asses and you were like, see, we told you radical individualism, it's the future. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we performed an experiment. We got the results of the experiment and uh, that created a law. <laughs> like all great experiments, you got exactly the results you were looking for. Exactly. But as soon as the game ended, I remember this, we immediately began telling and retelling each other the story of that game. Like the radical individualists had built a robust economy through like whatever self-reliance and deregulation and dominated the globe. And like the bog standard Democrats and Republicans had squandered their resources, squabbling over scraps. And me... <laughs> I had amassed a tremendous number of people in a corner of the map that no one cared about because I didn't want to fight. Uh, My population was peaceful and well-fed, but didn't manage to conquer anything or expand anywhere. And it was said that I'd spent the game putting on a benefit concert. Oh, my God. essentially recreating Live Aid. Oh, my God. (laughs) This is the thing. I still remember this. We're still laughing about it. I'm talking about it on my podcast. It's like 28 years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and it's funny because I, I remember the joke about the benefit concert. Yes. <laughs> like that that didn't happen. There were no rules for a benefit concert. No, but it was like, but we looked at what had happened mathematically and it was like, Absolutely. why does Kenan have all these people here who aren't doing anything? And it was like, they must be putting on a benefit <laughs> yeah. concert to combat famine in Africa. Oh my God. that That's amazing and feels very <laughs> it fitting. Was, it was incredible. <laughs> so I don't know, like how often do you have a gaming session that you're still going to be discussing in three decades. And can any published game designed to be played by strangers compete with a youthful obsession carried among friends to its absurd conclusion? These are not rhetorical questions. We also want to know the answer. That's why we're all here recording this episode of the Punchboard Cathedral podcast, where we are discussing games to remember. Joining me, as always, for this hex crawl down memory lane is my abstract ally, Alba. How's it going, Hi. <laughs> Hi. And carrying the plot all the way from the Garden State is gamer, lawyer, farmer, and guy who's been putting up with my bullshit for way too long, Eli, my dude. <laughs> Hi, Kenneth. Hi, Alba. <laughs> Uh, 
So I wanted to have you on for this because, honestly, I wanted to have you on because we like arguing about games. And then I was like, oh, well, this is the topic because if you get to the end of a game and you can't tell a story about what just happened, you don't like that game. Is that fair? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's really why I don't like a lot of abstract games. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The like, most interesting part of chess is like the knight attacked the bishop. Why did the uh-huh. knight attack the bishop? Like, was it like mm-hmm. a religious dispute? Did the bishop, you know, say <laughs> something to his daughter. I mean, it's, it's something along those lines. Well, and also every knight seems to have a horse with one bad leg, right? And so that's why they're always going off to the side. Yeah. Yeah. The- <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, abstract games I really, really don't like. Um, something that has like a theme that's really just kind of slapped on. Mm. Yeah. But like a lot of Euro games, I'm not going to like as much because it doesn't really tell that much of a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I complain on here a lot about Euro games that promise a grandiose theme and then I usually like can get over my disappointment that it didn't have that theme and then like be like oh I like this puzzle but I think for me I'm like cool I'm taking my brain to the gym I'm doing this like you know complex mathy whatever yeah. and you're a fucking lawyer and you're like you don't need to take your brain to the gym <laughs> yeah like, no I, I I really have no need or patience for that like I wanted to I wanted to tell a story So for the 98% of listeners who didn't go to high school with the two of us, (laughs) to get to know you a little better, Alba, you've devised an icebreaker? I have. Excellent. Welcome to Bling, Bin, or Borrow. All right, so, sir... Tonight, you must decide which of these games you will bling out and keep in your collection, which one you will borrow, meaning you have to get rid of it, but you can still play it within your lifetime. You just have to borrow someone's basic ass version of this game (laughs) or which one you will bin, which means you will throw it in the trash. You will never, ever play this game Again, yeah, you've been it like from history. Yeah, so like been like this game no longer exists. Yeah, it is gone. Not not just I I don't own it. No, yeah. you okay. just cannot. No, it it is poof <laughs> gone from the universe. It, it would be funny to make the lore that like this game exists and you see people playing it at cons and stuff, and for some reason no one will ever play it. With you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you look. There's like exactly. clearly open spots at the table, and they just they're just like sorry, no, we can't. We're all full. And you're like what? Why won't you let me play? Exactly. It's like it's like one of those trick dollar bills, you know, that's like tied to a string. Every time you like reach this for it, it's like, oh, no. Just, just pulls the entire scythe board right out of reach. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So the three games that you have to select from are Spirit Island, mm-hmm. Scythe, mm-hmm. and Blood Rage. Oh, um, I do like Blood Rage. I really enjoyed playing it. The minis are amazing they're so good um i know if i were to own a copy of blood rage though i would never paint the minis or i'd have to get somebody else to paint the minis Mm -hmm. um and then i every single time i played i'd be like kind of disappointed because i had these really really awesome minis that weren't painted oh although maybe that's a reason to bling it yeah because what i'll do what i'll do with minis is i'll actually give them to people that really enjoy painting minis and have them paint them Ooh, i like that that's like a commission yeah lj's painted a bunch of your minis right yes they did my blood bowl teams that's awesome but just just basic gameplay, I'd have to say it probably been Blood... I want to say Blood Bowl. Um, Blood Rage. Okay. The other two is hard. I pretty much have Scythe blinged 
at this point. You do? Mm. I have Kenan's big box that you guys were talking about in the last- <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kenan bestowed the big box to me ah. with like absolutely gorgeous containers. They all nest in beautifully and there's he like stained them. Yeah, that sounds like- It's like a work of art. That sounds like a Kenan project. It's an absolute work <laughs> of art. And then I bought the realistic food and, oh. the, and the, the metal coins. Uh-huh. It's all together in this one big box. I also own Fenris, which is the expansion to that. Mm-hmm. I actually play that a lot solo. I'm playing through the entire Fenris campaign solo. That's awesome. So do you want to go back to just your basic ass no. side? I know where that's living, uh-huh. you know, and and I probably couldn't go back. So I'd probably bling Scythe. Okay. And then, you know, borrow Spirit Island. I mean, Spirit Island, I also have a organizer that I also got from Kenan <laughs> for Spirit Island. <laughs> if I remember correctly, the first time we went to Gen Con in 2019, I brought it to you because I had gotten that organizer yep. with like a bunch in a Kickstarter. And I handed it to you and you were like, I'm never going to assemble this. So we went out and bought glue and I assembled it for you. Like, it, in Gen our Con. hotel room in, at Whoa. Gen Con. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. That organizer, it helps with setup. It helps a little bit mm-hmm. with, you know, the gameplay, but like, it's not special looking. Whereas like the scythe organizer is like gorgeous. And do you only mm. have like the original spirits and stuff? Um, no, I have branch and claw also. Mm, I don't know if we can let you keep branch and claw. <laughs> so I could only have the, the, the basic. Well, you wouldn't have it. Like if you're borrowing it, you'd borrow like someone's copy and they probably only have. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe they know? have branch and claw. Maybe yeah. they don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. See, I haven't played a ton of Branch and Claw, actually. All right. So I don't really know there what I'm missing. Go. But uh, but yeah, so I think that would be it. I had been Blood Rage, Bling, Scythe, and Borrow, Spirit Island. Well, there you have it. Um, Bye-bye, Blood Rage. See ya never. <laughs> Blood Rage goes to Valhalla, yeah. but, it, but it doesn't come back. <laughs> exactly. So Bling and Scythe, Binning Blood Rage, and Borrowing Spirit Island. All right. All right, so we're talking about games to remember, games that leave a lasting impression that you're still talking about after the fact. Eli, I have introduced you to some of the most beloved and highly regarded Euro games. I taught you Lost Ruins of Arnak. I taught you Dwellings of Eldervale. Well, I didn't teach it to you. You were around for that same <laughs> awful teach that we talked about in the past. Yeah. Actually, you weren't there. You came after we had all learned it. We did teach it to you. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, I've showed you these games. I've introduced you to these games, and you friggin' hated them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What games do you actually like? Amazing. Tell us about a game that does it for us. Mm. I mean, so I'll t- I'll tell you about that, but tell you about like why I didn't like Arnak. Like Arnak is yeah. an awesome theme. You know, it's like mm-hmm. Indiana Jones. You're going into these. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very colonialist, but like you're going into yeah, sure. the forest and you have to prepare and you have to get the funding and everything like that. Essentially, to me, it was just like, okay, there's six different types of currency. You have to move the currency around from one (laughs) place to the other. And if you have currency here, you can do this, which allows you to get more currency there. And like, I I really could see like Arnak completely reskinned as some sort of economic theme or mm. who yeah, knows? as we as we joked about I think on a previous episode there's there's no running from boulders there's no snake pits no, it's exactly, about logistics yeah. for an expedition exactly mm. it's about like coming up with the funding and the materials that you need to just like <laughs> brush artifacts what's the two player game Akrotiri? no there's a two player card game oh lost cities lost cities yep 
I think that theme of Arnak is actually better mm. than Arnak itself. And it's much, much, much simpler. Mm. And it's just a card mm-hmm. game. Because that you have to like figure out like, oh, I'm going to try to go to Atlantis. Right. So let me get all the Atlantis cards together. Oh, no. You know, the person I'm playing against is going to go to Atlantis. Right. Oh, no. They went to Atlantis before me. And there was only a couple things left. You know, it's a card game. It's not like mm-hmm. promising you this like, you know, storytelling journey that I feel like when you look at the box for Arnak, I don't know. I mean, I have never played Arnak, but everyone who loves it, I, I've always presumed until this podcast and I learned more that the reason they love it is because it's this like rich story. No, I, I didn't feel like there exactly. was much story at all in it. I I, I enjoyed, I, I'll enjoy playing anything. Yeah, yeah. I can sit down and play, you know, chess with somebody and I that I'll have a great time, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, but given the choice. It's better than not playing a game with your friends. Absolutely. But afterwards, you know, we're talking about the game and like, I had no idea where your expedition was going. Mm-hmm. I really didn't know where my expedition was going. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like, oh man, I can't believe Dale beat me to get that rare idol or something. I had no idea what, mm-hmm. what happened mm-hmm. in the game. Just at some point, the game ended and I forget who had more points than everybody else. Y- yeah, you counted up points yep. and that was... I really don't like any game that like ends with just let's count up points and whoever has the most mm-hmm. points wins. That's fair. But, I mean, games that I do like, you know, do have a story afterwards. So so tell us about one. So one example is uh, Nemesis. Ooh. And for anybody that doesn't know, a Nemesis is... I don't know. When you look at it, it seems like it's very obvious, like an alien ripoff. It's explicitly an alien yeah. ripoff. Yeah. Like they're not trying to hide it. Exactly. They make like a cat mascot for it. Mm-hmm. It's, you know. Mm-hmm. And like the creatures look very, you know, Atric Giger, Xenomorph. Mm-hmm. So essentially everybody wakes up in their cryosleep. You know, you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to do that. And it's almost like a an Among Us sort of theme, you know, like, oh, everybody needs to fix the engines and set a course for Pluto. Mm, so yeah. you get up and you start doing, you know, the different things. Then, of course, there's, you know, aliens on the ship. So the aliens are chasing you around. And then throughout the game, you get, I think it's throughout the game. There's still some stuff in the beginning, but it's definitely revealed. You're talking about the, the goals? Yeah. Yeah, you get them at the beginning. This is the genius of the game. You get two goals at the beginning. One is benevolent and one is malevolent. Yes. And then about halfway through the game, yeah. Ooh. You pick one of them. That's what it is. Based Ooh, on sort of how so things you, are going. You choose whether you're bad or good. Essentially, yeah. Yes. Oh, that's cool. And your goals, whether you're bad or good, your goals may or may not be compatible with the goals of the other players. Yeah. Ah. So multiple people can win in theory, although usually it's like between one and zero people who mm-hmm. win. Yeah, everybody can lose. Yeah. If you complete your goal, you're a winner. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you die. Oh, interesting. So we played, it was at Gen Con. Um, I forget what hotel yeah. it was, but the one like late night hotel. We played in the open gaming room. We started at like midnight. Yeah. Oh, right. The Marriott or whatever. Yep. Uh-huh. So first of all, it was like a fantastic experience because I'm with, you know, my friends at Gen Con in this huge hotel room. Like you said, we started to play at midnight. There's all sorts of people going on. You know, Kenan knows different people from different parts of the Instagram globe and we're (laughs) talking to them and Instagram and stuff. And, you know, we're joking about the guys that just started to set up Twilight Imperium Imperium. at midnight. (laughs) Whoa. And (laughs) one of them was reading the rule book. Oh, no. Oh, God. I would not like to be at that table. Yeah. Yeah. You could tell how that was going to (laughs) end. And we outlasted them. We did. We were the last people in 
in that room by a solid half. An yeah, hour. it was uh, that was That's... I was very very impressed. So yeah, so everybody is having a great time, and and we're playing this you know playing this game of Nemesis with any game like the people you're playing with makes such a huge difference because mm-hmm. like Nemesis essentially is kind of a role playing game. You know, mm-hmm. um, everybody has like literally a role, right? And then everybody also has like powers. You know, some people are better at things than other people. Whenever I had played the game before, it was very alien. And maybe it might have been different for other people, but like I was absolutely playing Event Horizon. Oh, interesting. What's that? So there's a movie called Event Horizon. It's another like space horror movie. Uh-huh. I think I probably saw it in theaters with you. Probably. Actually, in high school. Um, so, like, I mean, essentially, it's just like they open this Event Horizon to like the demon world <laughs> and everybody goes absolutely crazy and kills each other in horrible ways. And then, like, another ship shows oh up. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they find like the Event Horizon, which I think was the name of the ship. And surprise, surprise, the demon world opens up again and all these horrible things happen. It starts off as sci-fi and ends up with like walls of blood. Yeah, Yeah, it sounds like a massacre. It it absolutely is. is. It's a fantastic movie. Is it? I I really like it. And I watched it. So I actually went back and watched it after we played this game because it reminded me of it so much. Interesting. Interesting. And and it it held up? I really liked it. Okay. Essentially, my goal was to make sure that everybody on the ship died, (laughs) that the ship itself does not reach its destination and then explodes, and I die. Oh, my gosh. (gasps) Suicide mission. So, and, and I didn't really completely know that. So it was sort of like go, slowly going mad, you know, as as the game progressed. <laughs> oh my god! So like at first, like I start the game and I'm like trying to help people and like, oh, we got to go here and uh oh, there's an alien coming up. Watch out, you know. But then like as the game progressed, it just got crazier and crazier. And also, everybody doesn't know, you know, they're all hidden agendas, right? You know, so it's like, oh well, is Eli going there because he wants to actually fix that engine, or is he going there because he wants to blow up that engine and kill Kenan while he's in there. Um, well, we all want to, but I'm just kidding. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> joke, 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 joke. Ha, 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 ha. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's fine. That's definitely the sort of thing you can take back. Kill right. him with love. Uh-huh. <laughs> kill me with flattery. And hugs. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, so the game completely spirals out of control um, towards the end. And then it, then at some point it becomes, you know, very obvious that like, oh no, like Eli is trying to kill all of us. We need to kill him or else we're all going to die. Did they? I believe at the end I wound up, you know, killing everybody <gasps> and, you know, just blowing up the ship. I forget exactly what happened, but it went out in a blaze of gore. My memory of this is so much clearer than yours is. Oh yeah, you were in this game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, this Kenan is the one that Gen Con. Oh, right. This is the one that Jank on. I, I mean, and that's interesting, too, that like two people can play a game and have totally different right. stories. Totally different. So what was your hidden objective, Kenneth? You know, from my from my point of view, that's that's what the game was. And it and it was it was fantastic. I had an awesome time playing that. <laughs> I am bad at games like this for the same reason I'm bad at games like Riscopoly, where I'm <laughs> gonna not not try to fight anyone because I just want to like build a peaceful, thriving community. <laughs> Everyone knows that I'm not going to pick the malevolent right. goal because I'm going to be like, guys, if we just all work together, we can all survive this thing. <laughs> and like, while all of my friends are like, ha what a chump and you know, stabbing me in the back. Oh, so you chose like a positive. I was just trying to get us back to earth, man. I was trying to kill the aliens <laughs> so we didn't contaminate the, the, the whole human population. 
so and get what's all my your... friends home <laughs> so to their families. <laughs> so what's your what's your memory of how this ended and like what was the final well, scene all, in your mind? Eliza was just saying like we were all having such a great time because it was a great group for it. We were not all having a great time. I was like praying for this game to end. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Amazing. And I don't think I was the only one, but I'm only going to speak for myself here. But this game is, first of all, first of all, Alba, (laughs) will you make a note in the show notes that we need to stop having guests on because they keep stealing my answer? (laughs) Because this was oh, mine. This also. is amazing. Okay, so no, this is great though because we actually this is like one of those like episodes of at the after party where like the crime is being seen from like different perspectives. Yeah, yeah, it's it's Rashomon. Exactly. So right now we're like, okay, we just saw Eli's. Now <laughs> cameras pivoting. So we start at midnight. The dudes playing Twilight Imperium give up, go home. <laughs> Shocker. Everybody playing like light little werewolfy party games so that they can, you know, just stay awake and have fun with their friends. They give up and go home. And it's just us. <laughs> and this game is such a mess. Like just mechanically, it has so much going on. It's cool and sandboxy because like you can do whatever you want to do, but you can do whatever you want to do because there are rules for everything. Hmm. And like any game that promises to be an RPG in a box that doesn't need a game master, this game is lying. It does need a game master. Our friend Keith knew all the rules and he can sort of run the game while playing it, Hmm. run the monsters, tell us how to do the things we're trying to do so that because there's no way you're going to get this full rule set into six people's heads or five people's heads or whatever. It's just too complicated. And it's fiddly and fussy and it goes on forever. And then, you know, I'm being a good guy, so I get eliminated. Everyone else gets eliminated. Eliza has killed us all, but he still has to (laughs) set the ship to go home to Earth so that, you know, the aliens kill everybody back then and then kill us or whatever. So the last like 20 minutes of this game, we're just watching Eli play by himself. Oh, really? Trying to like destroy the ship, sabotage this, uh-huh. kill that, whatever. So you're once you're eliminated, you're just like out of the game. Yes. Uh-huh. See, at, at this point, I had gotten so into the sort of event horizon, complete psychosis of the game <laughs> that like uh-huh. I thought you guys were still playing at this point like your ghosts must have been haunting you <laughs> it's so funny it's like I'm picturing this is like the movie in my mind is that Eliza is like running to the helm of the ship you know like he's already like everyone's just like bodies strewn about and then he's just like mm-hmm. running to the front of the ship and he's like burp, 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 burp. he's like uh-huh. target located earth you know and then he's just like like driving it there. There's like aliens still coming at him. So exactly what you're saying is why this game was on my list, even though I don't like this game. (laughs) Because we finished it. Eli won, completed his goal and looked up and was like, that was amazing. And I was like, what are you talking about? That was not amazing. That was so annoying. It was so frustrating. There's so much luck in it. There's so much your friends undermining you. You can't have a strategy. Nothing goes the way you want it to. And then we walked home to the hotel laughing, cackling, doing exactly what we're doing now, like telling the story of this game. This game is an incredible story generation engine. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And after you play it, it is so much fun to talk about and joke about and recount. And it creates these great stories. I don't find it fun while I'm playing it. I find it to be incredibly frustrating. But there's no denying that the memory of this game is awesome. Always. I've played it three or four times, and that's yeah. always the thing. The first time I played it at Dale's house with Keith, I was I had the same thing. I was like, oh, this, this rule set is such a mess. It really needs to be streamlined. This game's going on forever, blah, blah, blah. I got back home to Brooklyn the next morning and Kate was like, 
what'd you do at game night? And I was like, oh, we played this weird game and then proceeded to tell her for an hour, the entire plot <laughs> of our game. You told her the movie the movie that you saw. Yeah, the movie. Yeah, the movie like, of our game. <laughs> exactly. And then Dale and Keith and I are texting for days, like making fun of each other about how we double-crossed each other. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's so interesting that it has this competing thing where it's like, I don't know that I had that, that great of a time. Yes. But then when I was reliving it. Well, so the three kinds of enjoyment, right? This is yeah. a destination. For me, this is like a vacation that it rained the whole time. Mm. But then like you talk about it afterwards and you remember that. Like, that it was really funny that you got soaking wet trying to get your, like, tent out of the bag or whatever, mm. you know? Like, mm-hmm. all those things that were frustrating at the time become these good stories I to think, tell. I think one really good point, though, too, is, like, I didn't have to do the numbers on the game. Like, Keith was doing that. And I, and I, do, right. I do remember that. Right. And if I had to be, mm. you know, running all the numbers and being like, okay, well, this creature attacks with two D10s mm-hmm. and this one has one D4, mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think I would have enjoyed it as much. Because because I didn't have to do any of that. I was just able to throw myself into this crazy character that was going around trying to end (laughs) Earth. Absolutely. And I feel this way about every one of these like big sprawling sandboxy games. The person who knows the game, in Mm -hmm. case of Gloomhaven, it's Dale. In the case of Nemesis, it's Keith. They make it fun for the rest of you Mm. the same way a dungeon master makes D&D fun for everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, now I can't decide if I want to play this or not. (laughs) You don't, but you want to have played it. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's. Can we figure that out for me, please? <laughs> well, it's sort of. You're pretty close. I mean, you just got the whole story of one game of That's it. That's true. You essentially need to like total recall the game, <laughs> right? Just put memories in your brain about the times you've played this game, and it's been so much fun. Yes. Oh, that's great. Perfect. Yeah. So from Perfect. now on, I'm just gonna go around reliving your reliving of this game. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's almost that. Look, we were just showing restraint. If you want us to. Tell you about all the times we played this game. We will do it in great detail. The one interesting thing about Nemesis, though, too, is that like every time that I played before, like it was it was an alien, you know, ripoff, and that's what I was expecting, and that's what I really really enjoyed. But this time that I played the game, it was a totally different movie. Yeah, and I think we were playing essentially just you know the base game. I don't think it this had any. There was nothing different. It's just that you had a different goal, yeah. and mm. the different combinations of goals make a totally different story every time. Yep. Honestly, the first and third types of enjoyment, the anticipation and the memory of. Like this game delivers mm-hmm. in droves on mm. both of those. Because you're like, I'm going to play Alien. It's going to be so cool. And then you're like, I did play Alien or Event Horizon or yeah. Aliens or whichever, whichever Alien movie you played. For me, it doesn't really deliver on that, like actually while playing it one, but it's it's definitely delivers mm-hmm. on the other two. Mm. All right, Alba, you got one for us? Uh, yes, but as usual, I have like a very different angle Good. on this. I'm really glad about that because Archuzma had like, I think two different kinds of what memorable meant to them. And I think Mm. you're going to have the other kind. And and I think that's good. Yeah. Okay. So I went home to visit my family over the break and I brought an assortment of games, um, most of which I hadn't played yet. They were mostly games that I was like, I've been wanting to play this. And, you know, either I don't have the player count. And you were like, one of these better damn well be memorable. Yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, well, that obviously who, who doesn't want that, but that wasn't what I thought. I think more, you know, the anti anticipation thing that you were talking about, that was definitely present for me where every time I go home, I feel like I'm imagining what we're going to play and if we're going to have a great time. And so my mom has Parkinson's and she, there's two things. One is that her personality, she's not a gamer personality. You know, I think for some people like playing a competitive game, it's not a fun experience. It's either like, you know, makes them feel like you're in a comparison contest or, you know what I mean? Like kind of an intellectual comparison. Yeah, absolutely. And um, not that I think that that's like, 
my family's go they're not that type of gamer or anything but I think for her that's just often kind of the thing that she's coming into a situation with is like oh I feel like I'm going to be just compared to everybody I think a lot of people feel that way and games stress them out yeah. totally and so I think that she's just usually kind of like eh you know I'll just watch or like maybe, maybe she'll join in sometimes and then the other thing is you know she has Parkinson's and so she I think worries about her agility not just physically but also like mental agility in the sense that it's like well if it's a you know for example something that we take for granted where it's like maybe we're all going to play a dice rolling game and like no for her it's not really that enjoyable because maybe she feels like doing something that's quick where you have to like maybe have some speed element to it or that Mm. you have some sort of physical element to it it's not going to be enjoyable because it's going to like she might have a hard time accomplishing it or doing it you know so i just have never known what to invite her to play um or i've never been successful in finding something that i felt like we actually had a really nice time together so one game that i brought home was this game alice's garden it's like a tile lane game it's very small like a $20 little box type of game with like, you know, supposedly the theme is Alice in Wonderland. Mm. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> it's basically just tiles that have pictures of things that are remotely related to Alice in Wonderland. One of the five public domain themes that just gets used over and over again. Exactly. Yeah, it's either that or Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Or, uh, uh, yes. I guess now we're going to uh-huh. see like Steamboat Willie. Yes, you're right. That's it. Like that's going to be the next I thing. I never thought we'd <laughs> see the day. I never thought it would happen. Oh, I think that's the next reskin of Wingspan is Steamboat Willie. <laughs> I want it to be the next reskin of Battlestar Galactica. You know, the new version is Cthulhu. I want the one that's like, we're all on board the Steamboat that's with Steamboat Willie. Amazing. You know, I'm mad. I like that a lot. So anyway, so I bring this tile laying game home. There's not that much special about it in the sense that like you, you have some tiles, you have a multiplayer solitaire board. Everyone's got a little board mm-hmm. um, and you're just trying to score different things, you know, like ones that have little chess pieces on it and if you get the chess pieces lined up on this walkway you score points if you get the um mad hatter you know all in a section a majority or something you score points are you drafting these tiles and you're drafting these tiles there's these little bags that so they each have a different shape so here's where this game also kind of shines is that there's really nice components like Mm -hmm. even though it's a 20 dollars box that you can get from target or what you know it's kind of mass market in that way but like the pieces that themselves are actually pretty nice like they're the little bags for that hold each of the tiles there's just something like there's this nice green velvet and like just these details that you're kind of like not expecting in a tiny box like that yeah um and then the way that it happens is like you just every round like one person is the start player for that round and they get to choose what shape everyone's going to get um and then everyone else has to just fit this thing on their map and try to like score the most points. It's very simple. It sounds like a little seven wondersy with a with a spatial component. I'm looking at it now on BGG. It's like very Tetris. It's very Tetrisy. That's exactly right. And so you kind of have to hold a few things. So like there's the way that the tiles score, but then also at the end of the game, if you have empty spaces, you lose a lot of points for any empty spaces. Sure. So it's very Tetrisy in that sense. Or King, as King well. Domino-y. Yeah. And patchwork. Yes. Yeah. So those I think make sense. Um, although I definitely see what you mean about the Seven Wonders. I just think that the Seven Wonders has. It's okay if I'm wrong. I'll just edit it out, and no one will ever hear me have said a stupid thing. So don't worry about it. Well, okay then. <laughs> so I played this with my mom and my sister. 
had kind of no expectations. Like I was actually surprised when my mom was like, yeah, I'll play with you guys. I had this moment of like panic when I first passed out the player mats because I thought, oh no, you know that thing where you suddenly look at icons or something and you think like, oh, this is just going to look like a mess to this person. You know what I mean? Like I was looking at the little reminder thing of how things score, which is at the bottom of everyone's player mat. And I was like, Oh, God, like she's just going to look at this and be like, how do the hats score and how do this score? It just seemed like all of a sudden uh, I was like, oh, no, I can't turn back. Yeah. Well, I was completely wrong. Hmm. She beat us. She beat. Actually, I think my sister beat her by one point. I was like way in the back in third. Yeah. Those two, like they were so good at it. They like scored, you know, like I think it was like 80 points or something. And I had like 30. (laughs) She had a great time. And I I felt that's awesome. Yeah. Like I just felt like, oh, my God, I found a game that I think she would play again and that she is good at. And she like had a nice time playing it. And it was also like a pretty game. Mm -hmm. I feel mixed about it. It's sort of, you know what it feels like to me? The artwork feels a little bit like a Monet or something where it's like when you stand back, it's like, oh, that looks cute. If you look a little too closely, everything looks a little funky and weird. But like, <laughs> but when you're looking at the board from kind of a wider perspective, you're like, this is cute. Uh-huh. I don't know. It just felt very like sweet, the whole experience. At the same time, it was still like a good puzzle. Like it wasn't and it wasn't like that kind of thing where you're just like, oh, I had a nice time and somebody had a great time. And but the game was like, meh. And, you know, but I was like, oh, this is like. I'm surprised. I actually really like this. I would play this again. And I clearly am getting my butt whooped by my mom. Yeah. I think those of us who try to sort of be ambassadors for games, you know, to the normies in our lives, Mm -hmm. I care so much less about winning than I care about everyone having a good time. And so that, that experience of like, oh, this other person is doing really well. And that is a win for me. Yes. Like I win by you having fun. And and if you win, that's better for me than I win and everyone else like feeling a little dejected, you know? Totally. So I'm the person who's going to wind up bringing games to my family parties to the point where like, it's kind of my responsibility at this point, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I started playing games from a very, very young age because my family, like, they're game players, you know? So jealous. Uh, my wife, like, did not understand it whatsoever. Because of that, like, my dad is always like, oh, don't trust Eliza. He's just <laughs> trying to win. <laughs> I'm totally not. Like, if I lose, I'm going to be just as happy if ever everybody has a good time. Mm-hmm. But my dad will start saying that. And then I will become kind of like the arch enemy at the table. <laughs> and then, like, I'll be like, all right, well, I got to win this. Yeah. <laughs> it becomes very, very cutthroat. That's probably more of a family dynamic thing, though, than anything else. <laughs> I love it, though. I love everybody's family dynamic in, uh-huh. in games. I like that they turn you into the heel, like in wrestling. Oh, absolutely. Like yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and, and I love playing that role too. It's a great trade-off if it means that people want to be involved and be like, okay, we'll, we'll take him down together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If I lose, everybody won. Mm-hmm. And that comes from my family playing other games and being just very, very competitive about dominoes. And right. When you're playing a game with my family, it's serious. <laughs> I love that. So my family is the same way and I am really not competitive. And I know that's a weird thing for a person who like spends all of his time thinking about and playing games, but like I just, I just not, I just don't care about winning or losing. And I learned like a a really important way to be from our friend Keith, who 
he will do everything in his power to stab you in the back when you're playing a game. <laughs> Even if it's a cooperative game like Gloomhaven, he will still like try to make sure that he leaves you to get beat up by the monsters while he grabs all the money. Oh my God. Just constantly scheming. <laughs> and I would like used to get really frustrated by it because I'd be like, gosh, why is Keith so competitive? But then the thing is, when you do it back to him, he's so impressed with you. Like he's so happy for everyone to be as diabolical and scheming as he is. And when you when you do it to him, he doesn't get upset. He's like, that was awesome. <laughs> I was like, oh, I get it now. That becomes the game. That's the game. And we're all just impressed with each other for like playing the game of backstab well. And I can like now by his example, get into that frame of mind. Mm-hmm. Whereas I used to be like, just leave me alone and let me build my little garden and like <laughs> fuck off, you know, which is why I was so bad at Riscopoly. <laughs> why you were having a Live Aid concert. Why I was doing Live Aid. I was like, guys, I've got Freddie Mercury coming. Just go away. Amazing. From your point of view and from your people's point of view, you're, they were probably having a much more successful and better time than anybody else in the world. Yes. <laughs> this is what was so funny about the game, right? Is that it was a test designed to get the result you wanted. It was like, which of these ways of being is going to produce world domination? <laughs> like, hey, none of my people ever got drafted or went hungry. It was like not a thing that won you any points in that. Yeah. Game. Like, would you rather live in the country that was like trying to make as much money and causing environmental <laughs> destruction, but right. you quote unquote won the game? Or the country where everybody was really happy. Right. <laughs> you know? I basically I basically made Denmark. Yeah, you know? exactly. My I don't know where my experience falls in the world of Riscopoly, but like you said, I just felt like I won. Yeah. Not because I won the game, mm. but because I was like, I won the night. Like this night is forever in my mind. And I, I just can't wait to relive it. I hope it I hope it happens, but I get to relive it now. You did win. You you talk on this podcast so much and to me so much about like wanting to create these wonderful experiences for your family and all of the life nonsense that gets in the way. And like, you did it. You won this time. I did. And you brought that fun experience for everyone and you made it happen. So that's yeah. totally a win. Yeah. And it, you know, it was a lis- lesson too, in a sense, because it's like, I pulled it out because I thought, oh, my sister will probably think this is cute. Like we could play this together. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh no, like I picked something that has too many rules. Like the mm. rule set is too Mm. complex for someone who doesn't play games but I was so wrong Mm. it made me realize like I just don't always know I don't always know what's gonna hit and I don't always know what people are gonna be capable of I mean that sounds rude maybe but no of course no the the accessibility I think is really really important if I'm gonna be playing a game with you know my gamer friends it's very different than the game that I'm gonna bring over my parents house Mm -hmm. I've I've realized and it was like kind of like sad like I've realized that like my mom's vision is really going Yeah. yeah you know and I've noticed games that I bring over that have you know lots of text or a board that's very hard to see. Yes. And my mom's not going to say like, oh, I can't see. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to play. Mm-hmm. Like, she's going to try her best. Right. But it slows everything down and is a best experience. So like now I have that in the back of my head of like, oh, well, you know, will she be able to see this okay? Mm-hmm. And like you said, with your mom with Parkinson's, like, you know, a game mm-hmm. like I just got it. The little bugs that push each other around. Kabuto Sumo? Kabuto Sumo. Oh, yeah. I love mm-hmm. that game, yeah, but so that fun. would be a bad choice, yeah. you know? Right, exactly. All the things you said are so true. And I think, especially those of us who like play so many games, especially if you are able-bodied and have good eyesight or whatever, like there's so many things you don't think about until you're yeah. with someone who is not necessarily 
young or has great eyesight or maybe their dexterity isn't great. And you take all these little things for granted, everything from pushing around little meeples on a board to like, like you said, seeing images, being able to like instantly recognize icons, things like that, that like you said, slow down the game and also just make it an experience unenjoyable for the person because it feels like a test. I think that's the thing is it feels like a test to somebody who is like, well, I can't really like move that quickly or I can't really see like you guys see. And it's I don't want to be reminded all the time that you have to wait for me to do X, Y, Z. And so my one tiny quibble with the game is that I do think that the tiles are a little bit small. And so I think that they could be slightly finicky for someone if you have a very shaky hand. Mm -hmm. That's my only thing is I wish that they were, I wish that the board and everything was just slightly enlarged. Not too much because I like a small box, but just a teensy weensy bit bigger to make it slightly just easier to push everything around. Yeah. You know, I I make websites for colleges and universities. That's, That's how I pay the bills. Obviously, accessibility is extremely important in addition to most of those institutions caring about it on their own. If they don't care about it, they get sued. Mm. They really have to be super ADA compliant. And so, like, accessibility is a big part of my job, and I only have Mm. to worry about people's eyes, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And even just that, it's really hard. Making something that is usable and accessible to everyone at, like, different levels of vision is really tough. And with board games, you have to worry about all five of people's senses, sort of more than just the five senses, like manual dexterity, all these different things. You learn from this that accessibility means something different to different people. And there are games that I love, like spatial puzzles, like, oh, but we've talked about this, that like, they just make some people miserable. Like their (laughs) heads just don't work that way, you know? Yeah. Same thing with like deduction games, like Turing Machine, Oh, uh which I love, but that's a game that just like really makes people feel awful. Like if Mm. if it's not the way their brain works, Mm. you know? Yeah. It's just like a miserable experience where, like you said, they feel like they're being tested. (laughs) But it's interesting because one of the first kind of intentional accessibilities that they put into games were dealing with people that are colorblind. Mm -hmm. They'll design, you know, shapes and patterns and stuff. So if somebody's colorblind, they're able to see the game. And it's just interesting because the vast majority of the population that is colorblind are men. Yes, Mm -hmm. I know. That was kind of the first like, oh, we got to make sure that these colorblind people are okay. And surprise, surprise. Yeah. (laughs) It's the guys. Right. Yeah. Which is not to say that they they shouldn't be. But yes, it is an interesting detail. It's also a lot of people. It's like one in ten guys. Oh, absolutely. Like, There's lots of yeah. people that like I've I've played with or in like a normal game group that are colorblind and it makes a big yeah. difference to them. It's funny too because that it's called dual coding it's like you pair a color with a shape or with a texture or a pattern or something like that so that there are two different ways Mm. to distinguish those things it's still harder for someone who can only perceive one of the two codings Mm. you know if you look at an unmatched board and the circles are different colors and then they also have these faint little patterns in them the person who has to like distinguish between all those different patterns is having a harder time playing the game than the person who can just tell the difference between orange and green and red yeah that makes sense so you do these things to make it easier for people, but it doesn't mean that they are having the same experience of the game as you are. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So yeah, <sighs> that was it. That's the memorable one. It's going on the list of pulling it out again. Eli, in your capacity as our East Coast con correspondent, you recently attended PAX U. Yes, it was awesome. It's definitely smaller than Gen Con. I don't know. I feel like Gen Con, there's like 
too many things to do. Hmm. There are things going on at Gen Con that I have no idea and will never know. Right. <laughs> and there's like an entire group of, you know, a thousand people that are so excited for Spoon Game. This is their life. And they go to Gen Con and they play the Spoon Game <laughs> all week. And, and it's awesome. It's the yeah. best thing ever. And I, and I literally have never heard of whatever that is. So PAX doesn't seem as big as that. But there is more than I would be able to do. Mm-hmm. doesn't have like the sort of like 24-hour nighttime aspect that Gen Con has. Okay. But it has an absolutely fantastic game library. Mm. I don't know if it was as big as the one at Gen Con. Probably not. Is it as expensive as the one at Gen Con? <laughs> no, because it's free. It really bothers me that after paying to get into Gen Con, you have to pay again to use the game library. Yeah, yeah that, that, that sucks. Really yeah. That really cool. sucks. And it's the same thing. You know, you sign out a game and you put up signs looking for players, looking for teachers, et cetera, et cetera. And they had a ton of new hot games and stuff like that. Um, So I went with Hobby Mule. So we were overnight Saturday to Sunday. And then on Sunday, we actually came back with our kids, which was awesome. Like I was able to bring my two youngest, my 16-year-old and my nine-year-old. And they had an awesome time. That's so cool. Yeah, that is cool. And it was really, really fun. So I have three questions I want to know about this. And I think you just answered the first one, which is who should go. And it sounds like it's fun for hardcore gamers and it's fun for families. And it sounds like an everybody kind of Totally, totally. Whereas like, I don't think I'd bring my kids to Gen Con. Mm -hmm. It's so much, you know? Yeah, no. But another thing too is like, I could drive there. Yeah. It's right in Philly. All right. So this is my second question is how far should someone travel to PAX U? Because I used to go with you to this when I could get on the train in Penn Station and get off in Penn Station, Philadelphia. Now I'm in California and I was like, well, I'm not going to PAX U. But like, should I have? Is it that good? It was pretty awesome. (laughs) In previous years, I'd say probably not. Okay. This year though, this probably does have stuff that Gen Con doesn't have. I felt like the indie presence was stronger at PAX U. Well, that makes sense because Gen Con is really expensive to exhibit. I'm sure. I felt like there was more kind of weird indie stuff. And it's like so big. You're not you're not going to see everything at Gen Con, but at this point, you're not going to see everything at PAX U too. Mm. So that's my third question. If someone decides to go to PAX U, how long should they go for, ideally? I'm very glad that I went overnight two days. I definitely could have spent a third day there. All right. I wish I could have gone. I feel a little worse now. I feel like I really missed out on something awesome. (laughs) Well, no, next year you'll go and and we'll stay three days and it'll be absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Excellent. They had this one thing which was fantastic. Have you heard of the role-playing game Morkborg? So it's very, very dark black metal kind of look to it, okay. but it's totally not. And it's like an extremely like open and loving community. Their joke is like, everything is heavy, but the rules. Ah, uh, that's nice. And it's very like old school role-playing game. Go into a dungeon and fight some goblins and then maybe Hack the goblins. slash. Exactly. But they sort of went the opposite way of Wizards of the Coast. And they were like, oh, see this rule set? Make your own things for it. Mm -hmm. You absolutely can use logos and this aesthetic and these rules. And it has just developed into this amazing like zine culture. Mm. You knew me when I was a zine kid. You know, this appeals to me. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So there's like kind of joke things. People be like, oh, we're going to do an entire dungeon, but just use a business card or like do an entire dungeon, but it's a poster. 
or like mm-hmm. do an entire dungeon, but like it's that. it's a record. Hmm. That's so fun. It's fantastic. And of course it's like let off too. There's Pirate Borg, sure. which is pirates, and then there's Cyborg, which is like cyberpunk, and then there's like uh-huh. Fish Borg, which is like fishing <laughs> rules that you can use. It's just really, really fun. So they did this thing at PAX called the Mork Run. Okay. Where if you went to every single one of the tables for all of the different Morkborg creators and got them to like punch your card essentially, you could then take that card and they did like drawings at the end of the day. Okay. What that did was a game in itself to go to every single one of these tables and every single one of these creators throughout the vendor hall mm-hmm. and see what they have and talk with people and stuff like that. Yeah. And it kind of gave you. It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic and like really developed this kind of community. And then at the end, they had this big giveaway. And Hmm. so uh, me and Hobby Mule have been playing this and just having a great time. We are going to actually be kickstarting (gasps) Mazeborg, (gasps) which is going to be a Mesoamerican Morkborg. I was just going to ask how you're spelling maze. That's awesome. So we're going to be going into Mesoamerican, South American, Caribbean myths, <gasps> lumping that into the Morkborg world. And it's like, it's absolutely perfect. There's this story about this guy that was like attacked by, you know, the invaders and they like cut his hands off. Mm-hmm. So what he did was he tied knives to his hands and, start, and started slashing conquistadors until they killed him. And, and that's like absolutely perfect Morkborg fault. Wow. So wait, that actually happened? That actually has happened. Jeez. We're kind of running into, you know, we're trying to be as absolutely respectful of the culture as possible. Uh It's also, you're dealing with myths. Sure. And Mm -hmm. and dealing with myths, you know, you're going to have crazy things and some of it is going to be hyper violent and some of it is going to be really, really Right. You're going to deal with types. Yeah, absolutely. So we're writing it now. All right. So people who are interested in this, what do they do? So I literally just started a Mazeborg Instagram account. Hey, it's your old pal Future Cannon from the edit here. If Mazeborg sounds interesting to you, that Instagram account is Black Market Press, one word. I also realized it isn't clear that the hobby mule Eli keeps mentioning was the co-designer of that Riscopoly game we played as kids. So, this team has over 50 years of combined game design experience between them. Jokes aside... I've known these dudes forever, and I can tell you they don't do anything half-assed. They throw their whole asses into every harebrained scheme they have, pursuing them with passion and care. Eli is exploring his own culture's history in this project, as well as the cultures of the surrounding region, and I'm confident that, as always, these dudes are going to cook us all up something extremely weird and extremely cool. Wow. Well, uh, you heard it here first, folks. Once again, we are the bearers of breaking news. Yeah. Coming soon. <laughs> Except this time it's true. The last time we, we did this, we were lying. <laughs> All right. Well, that's super exciting, dude. I can't wait to watch it develop. Uh, you need playtesters. You need help. You call us. You definitely will. You definitely will. He needs Maze Burger. Because this is pretty much this is pretty much just an excuse for me to be like, oh, man, no, I need to have a weekend and we need to playtest this. Yeah. Like, Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. need to press the fanfare button here on the soundboard. It's time for the Rabble Round. Here we go. Welcome to 
choose much shatter. This week's question was, what games have you played that have produced memorable occasions? And we got a lot of answers. Mm. We have boarding time, also known as Samir, talking about Anachrony. He says Anachrony is his top number one game ever after playing one game with his wife. Now they've played three games in a row. But I don't know. I just thought that was really sweet. To me, that just reminded me of all the times that I'm just like looking for that game that's going to be like so magical that my husband and I are going to immediately be like, this is our number one favorite game now. Yeah. We're obsessed. Unfortunately, it's just been proven to you that it can happen. Yeah. So now I'm just going to keep chasing my white whale. Yeah. Exactly. Shayna, who is exploring board games, says Brass. So she uh, lives overseas and she says it was one of the first games she played with good friends in Singapore and it created cherished memories. Yeah. So this is kind of the kind of memorable that you were talking about, Alba. It wasn't so much that the game itself was memorable. You're not remembering the arc of the game itself, Mm -hmm. but that you had a nice time with the people you were with and the game facilitated that. Yeah. The game itself can be memorable or everything surrounding the game can be memorable. Mm -hmm. And that I think was the kind you were talking about. And that that I think is what Shane is talking about here. Yeah, totally. Valerie, who's VG Fly for Fun, um, has a really kind of similar thing with Mm. Charterstone, Mm -hmm. where she says it's sweet and light. And we, my brother and me, love worker placement games where you get stuff and do stuff and build stuff. We love it so much. We played it in one weekend. And Mm. this is a legacy game. So for anyone who doesn't know, it's like it's it's that's a big campaign to have completed in one weekend. Yeah. So that's like kind of a combo of them. Right. It's like the game itself is like they remember that. But it's also like the experience that they had together and how obsessed they were. And she says the graphics, the special idea, the conditions, the legacy effect, all of that was part of this memory. Yeah. Legacy games are like absolutely great for that idea of like a memory Mm. because that you literally are creating a game. Yeah. You know, and so many of them sort of give you the idea that like, oh, well, now you could play this game and kind of relive those memories. Mm -hmm. So Rob Davio created the legacy game. He created Risk Legacy. His first idea for a legacy game was actually Clue, uh, but... But Hasbro didn't go for that one, but then they let him do it for Risk. And when he originally presented the idea, uh, the suits were like, you want a game that someone can only play 12 times? And he was like, no, I want a game that people will play 12 times. Mm -hmm. People don't play their games that many times. And that's the thing about that's incredible about legacy games is it reconstitutes the same group of people 8, 10, 12 times. And it doesn't matter if you even like the game or not. You get together with the same group of people 10 times and you're going to have memories and you're going to have your own little language and your own, you know, like little micro society that forms as a result of doing that. So quick, quick story about Legacy Game. Yeah. I have uh, Risk Legacy. Hobby Mule has Risk Legacy. We had two separate groups going. Uh There was an attack from my Risk Legacy group to his risk legacy group because I was spending the night at his house and I went in and like physically did something and I I don't want to spoil it for them, but I physically did something to their box that changed their game. And that was like from our game. So it was like an interdimensional thing. And like, like, so like I woke up late at night, I did this thing to their, to their box um, and then like went to bed. And then like weeks later, he took out his copy of Rest Legacy with his group and he was playing it. And they were like, what? 
how did this happen? It was amazing. <laughs> I love that decades later, you are still creating meta versions of Risk that interact with other board games. It's amazing. <laughs> That's incredible. It's funny. Uh, you, when you were talking about like these characters or these things that live on in the group mind, that reminds me also on this list, the Cajun gamer PJ said Frosthaven, five friends meeting every other Saturday, and now we have Heat Miser and Snow Miser in the group. And he had like all these laughing emojis, basically insinuating that within the world of the game, like they identified characters as the heat miser and snow miser. Uh-huh. And so uh-huh. now they just talk about them like that, you know? Yeah. And I, I just love that. And he said, it's a, it's a worthy beast of a campaign, which I'm sure everybody knows that right now. But. Yeah. So, I mean, I've talked about how memorable these games are to me and like play them with my friends and they, they got me through the pandemic. I, I've played them with Eli too. The thing about it is it's such a crunchy, mathy puzzle. But what we find we do is that we all take our turn. You're just doing math. This card gives me this many attack and I can move this many spaces and do this. And you're just doing the puzzle. And then you look up from your turn after you see how it all went and you tell the story about it. You go, okay. So I was like, don't worry, guys, I'll rescue you. And then I ran into the room and slipped on a banana peel and took out everybody. (laughs) You know, like you sort of step back from all of the crunch that you're doing and tell a little bit of story. And then you like go back Mm. to the crunch. And by the end of the night, you have this like very funny story in your head that is sort of like describing what the math shows, Hmm, you know? Interesting. I've not had that experience. We don't do that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I like like that. It makes sense why I'm not having the experiences that you're having. (laughs) Well, this also, I think, is the reason that, like, I have a different experience of obsession than some people do, is that, like, you Mm. can just play the Euro game, and it's it's just a game. But, like, I am inclined to be like... Wait, wait, do you realize what just happened? We just kicked this lady out of our house for having loose morals. Like, you know, whatever it is. I mean, yeah, that makes it more fun, of course. Sam of Sam the Kuma says, D&D, by far the game that has given me the most laughs, best stories, and forever memories. I have so many amazing memories of hilarious stories I can tell from our D&D adventures. And when you have a group who loves to make each other laugh, like you, me, and Kenan, (laughs) it's a magical time. Yeah. Look, I didn't make this my answer because whenever I post about D&D, my posts do really badly. So I understand <laughs> that our, our sweet European Eurogamer friends just like are not interested in this subject. <laughs> but yes, there is no game more memorable that I've ever played than my D&D campaigns. That's what it is. It's like a memory factory. Hmm. Foxbox Games says Feudum and Pax Pamir 2E. And we actually have audio from him, right? We have audio. Feudum's just great because it's just a giant open world style game where you kind of just do whatever you want in this big sandbox colored nightmare that looks like Adventure Time. And there's a bunch of guilds in it, six different guilds that are all interconnected. So there's like this mini game of like running around the map trying to block each other and fight each other, but also push and pull in the guilds to like make sure they're supplied. Just the whole world is very, very cool. And I always want to come back to it. I never have time to because I can't find people to play it with because it's so long. <laughs> and then Pax Premier Second Edition, the first time we played it, um, I got it for, as my first Kickstarter and we sat down to play it at the table and there's this mechanic in it where you are on alliances, but at some point in the game you could flip alliances by doing something bad. So we were playing the game and it was about two and a half hours long. About two hours in, we were all sitting around the table, all five of us, just in silence for ten minutes trying to think about what we were going to do, what was going to happen. Happened, and there was one guy named Jake and him and I were on the same alliance the entire game and I realized that our faction that we were on was not going to win the round so I just slowly turned and looked at him after all this time we were working together to make sure our faction was going to win I said dude 
I'm really sorry, but I'm out of here. And I killed one of his leaders <laughs> off to switch alliances with the other alliance. And he was so mad. But everyone at the table just erupted in laughter. And it was so much fun after just like 10 minutes of like absolute silence. And just all of us just like screaming. It was, it's just a really great game. Uh, this reminds me of Rising Sun a little bit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So this is what we're talking about that he's still talking about this game all this time later, right? Like it created a story, mm-hmm. like as a movie that's playing in his head. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So then we have Rolling Reggie who mm. says, Lord, of Vegas, which I've never played, but I was actually very excited to see this answer come through because I don't really have a group that I think I could play this with, but I want to. Like, I'm just dreaming it, you know? And then Reggie comes through and he's like, it's so big and fun and a riot. Two of my buddies backed it, the new reprint. I really don't think there's a more fun game that you can drink and play and have six players with. And we play it about three times a year. And I just, I love that. I love that that's sort of like this... um, I don't know, recurring convening of playing this game and having this like awesome time together. Yeah. And people talk about like beer and pretzels games, right? And I don't know if this is mm. one, but you can drink and have a bunch of people and you can still play it. Like not every game can support that. No, you know? no. It's got to be. not Feudum. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. very cool. And also, you know, we cited this game's co-designer in the intro. Oh, who's that? Uh, so that's James Ernest, who said that thing about how a game is a destination that you enjoy three times. Oh. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. We have the Meeple versus coming out swinging with Magic Maze. He says, Magic Maze at my family cheering after my close call successes. It's a limited communication, real-time co-op race game. You move four pawns around an ever-growing board without talking to find objects before time runs out. Yeah. This is a cool game. Have you guys played this one? No. It looks like the Amazing Labyrinth. It's really different. It's co-op. Is it real-time? It's real-time. And I might only be able to move left and you might only be able to move right and someone else might only be able to move forward and we're not allowed to talk (laughs) and so we're like hoping that we have the same plan about how to get through this maze while like things attack us and the maze is a shopping mall you are D&D characters getting stuff you need for a quest in a modern day shopping mall and there's like beholder security guards and stuff and so anyway you're trying to get through this maze without being able to talk to each other and each of you only like controlling basically like one limb (laughs) and the only thing you can do to communicate with one another is there's one pawn and you can pick it up and put it down in front of the person you want to do the thing that they can do (laughs) and hope that they like understand. Oh my God. It's really fun. That sounds fun. Yeah. It's very unique. I love real time games. Me too. Have you played five minute dungeon? No. Mm -mm. It's fantastic. Mm, Everybody has a like deck of cards that have different symbols on them. You need to match the symbols to get through the different traps and monsters and everything. And everybody's deck of cards is different because of your different, you know, somebody's the wizard, somebody's this, somebody's that, and you have special powers. So cool. It's awesome. That's cool. Chits and Cardboard also says Nemesis, Mm -hmm. popular answer Mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. This is kind of cool to me. Brett Spiel Hamster says New York Zoo, and the reason being it was my first time prototype testing. Made me aware of the complexity of board game design. I was quite new to board gaming back then, and it dawned on me while playing how I never really thought about the complexity of designing them. This was one of the days that sparked my love for the hobby. Yeah. I just thought that was kind of a cool thing. It was a unique way to look at the question, I thought. Absolutely. And one of those examples of, it wasn't so much the game itself. <laughs> Brett Spiel Hamster isn't telling us like, oh, I had six flamingos. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. They're telling us that everything surrounding the game was this very memorable experience, right? They got to be a part of this. Yeah. Just like that time I got to play Riscopoly with 
good decision. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> we have so many other ones. We'll share all the ones that we didn't get a chance to read on air on our yeah, Instagram. We did not There's do that so last many. time after we promised you, but maybe we'll do it this time. It's possible. Oh, I thought I did. Whatever. And <laughs> Malfus of Good Games says Terraforming Mars. Playing Terraforming Mars regularly with the same four people was absolutely great. We don't do that nowadays. We have two kids. Our friends have two kids, too. So shorter games now. But playing TM once a week was a blast. Yeah, I, I think a lot about I used to go to uh, when I we lived in Massachusetts and we went to this weekly Catan night that we got invited to. Like a lot of people, that was my entryway into hobby games. I it was the only game I knew about. So it was the only game we played. We played it week after week. Again, I don't remember any particular game of Catan. It's not memorable in that sense. But mm-hmm. I remember all the times like laughing and having fun with those people. I think as we get deeper into the hobby, that's a thing that's less and less likely to happen because you don't want to play the same game with the same people week Mm. after week. You want to play all these different games. And also it just gets harder as you get older to have a weekly game night. Oh yeah. And this is what I think the appeal of legacy games is sometimes more the promise than what it actually delivers because I know a lot of people who have unfinished legacy games. But the idea is that you're going to have that experience again of getting the same group of people together week after week and playing the same game. And mm-hmm. uh, and then it just gives you this extra little twist of the game's going to be a little different every time. I still have our copy of uh, Risk Legacy that we haven't finished. And like and Hobby Mule still has his defaced copy of Risk Legacy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the people that played that game that we would need to get together are far and flung all over the entire world. So the chances of us actually getting back together is very, very far and few between. But just the idea of us getting Mm -hmm. back together and doing it is wonderful. Yeah. I love that. After everyone retires Mm -hmm. and all the kids are at college. (laughs) And the game table says War of the Ring. It's the most epic experience in a board game. I have that game sitting on my shelf and I like dream. Yeah. No. And I dream of playing it. But, you know, then I had a child. And so it's just still staring at me. Ava, why didn't we know? each other when we lived down the street from each other gosh i don't know stop maggot who is jason says werewolf slash mafia yeah and he says not strictly a board game though versions of it have been made but for my money zero dollars werewolf mafia whatever you want to call it the basic social deduction murder game it's introduced me to new friends and got me to know old ones better and years later i will remember the particular twists and turns of how the streams played out you can explain it to literally any group in seconds and it doesn't require that they know anything about games yeah. So Jason is a high school friend of both mine and Eli's and was in that epic Nemesis game as well. I agree with this. And I think that like gamers, like hardcore gamers are sometimes really down on social deduction. I think maybe just because like if you've been to a few Gen Cons, you've probably played 8,000 games of Werewolf. But I just introduced this to my family over New Year's and everyone loved it. And we played it with a six-year-old and with a 50-year-old and everything in between. No one had ever played it before except for me. And like everyone was so fascinated by it and everyone had such a good time. And everyone's, you know, personalities manifested themselves in really interesting ways. It's one of those games where you can learn a lot about someone you already know really well. Mm. And I, I just, I think that these games are great. They're really fun. They're not games in the sense that we think of them. They're not like, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of strategy to it. It's just mainly lying well, but they're really fun and they do create these really memorable, funny events. Yeah, that's a good place to end it, I think.
So, what is it that makes a game memorable? What sorts of games do we expect to produce this experience? I mean, I, I think sort of one of the most common aspects is the people yeah. that you're playing with. Yeah. That makes such a huge, huge, huge difference. Yeah. Right. Any game, any game, especially that's your like intro gateway game, can be this game if you just get together with the same people over and over again and you like those people. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's anything else. Well, so there's that everything surrounding the game kind of memorable, which is all about the people you play it with. And then there's the like games like Nemesis that create memorable stories that are sort of these engines that produce them. Mm. And, you know, I agree, I think, with, with Sam that like RPGs are the pinnacle of that. Uh, and my cat either agrees or disagrees with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Rob Davio was talking about a second ago, created the legacy game. He now runs uh, Restoration Games, mm. which, you know, takes all these old 80s and 90s games that weren't necessarily very good and sort of modernizes them mm-hmm. and re-releases them. Mm-hmm. And he said in an interview, the most common change he has to make is from post-decision luck to pre-decision luck. Ah. So the old style of game was... I'm going to try this. I will roll these dice to see if it works. I'm going to punch that person. I rolled the dice. I hit or I didn't hit. Uh-huh. And the new style of game is sort of like what you get in Castles of Burgundy. You roll the dice first and then you decide what to do with the luck that you right. got. So that's like the biggest change that he has to make as he's modernizing these games. The one game with post-decision luck that really, really endures is D&D. You say, I'm going to hit this guy, and then you roll the dice to see if it happens. Mm. And the reason I think that that works in D&D when it is bad in other games and we take it out of those games when we modernize them is that D&D is not really a game. It's not a strategy game. It's a storytelling engine. And an interesting story begins when something goes wrong, which means Mm. that things simply cannot work the way you expect them to if you want to have an interesting story to tell. Mm -hmm. A game where you like can build a perfect engine and everything goes according to plan, that can be a very satisfying mental exercise, but it's not a memorable story. The reason that Nemesis is so memorable and that Eli and I are still talking about it is that there's so many things that will go wrong with the plan that you do. There's the luck of what aliens come out and how, where they come out and who's going to attack you. And then there's the fact that all of your friends are sabotaging your plans without you understanding. Mm. And your friends didn't even know that they were sabotaging your plans. (laughs) They may or may not have been doing it on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What you do in response to things going wrong, that's the story. That's what's memorable. That's the movie. That's the movie. Yeah. (laughs) I have a lot to say about D&D, but we've been going on a long time, so I'll save it for another day. (laughs) So uh, I think then all that's left to say is that if you want to join the Chattering Chusma, uh, be featured in the Rabble Round. You can find us on Instagram. Alva is Meeples and Beninis. I am Punchboard Cathedral. You have probably been listening to some sweet tunes. Most of them are probably Alva's. A little bit of it might be mine. Uh, I don't know yet because we we don't know where the music's going to go, but it'll be in the show notes. If you want to hear more of Alva's music, that's uh, Alva and the Mighty Lions. You can find that on Spotify, right? Yep. If you want to hear more of my music, you can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> But what you can do if you're enjoying this podcast, and come on, if you got this far, just admit that you like Like Us, okay? Rate and review us. We love that. We're seeing more and more of those stars popping up on Spotify, on Apple. Uh, It helps other people find us. Thank you so much. And that's all for now. We'll be back (laughs) in a couple weeks. Until then, ramble on. You know we will. Bye. Bye, friends. Adios, everybody.
I am your third follower. Alba beat me. <laughs> <laughs> it's my goal in life. That is a great goal because it is very easily accomplished. <laughs> you're you're going to have a life of success. 